Okay, this morning we are beginning a study through 1 Peter, so I'm going to ask you to turn to 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 1. And we're going to read just the first two verses this morning as we begin this look at this book. And from here, we'll go into 2 Peter eventually. But uh, 1 Peter is not a book that a lot of people do a lot of studies on. In fact, when I was looking for uh, commentaries and other study guides for 1 Peter, it seems like there's not a whole lot available for this. There's a few out there and a few good ones. But not many people take the time to look at First and Second Peter in depth. And so we're going to do that together. And just as an introduction, First Peter is one of two books written by the Apostle Peter to believers of his day. But the messages in them are so applicable to us, I think it's relevant and important for us to go through these. And we're going to kind of take it in chunks and see what the lessons are. But Peter's goal in writing specifically this first, the book of 1 Peter is to encourage believers to be faithful and continue rejoicing in times of trial. Um, scholars will say that this book was written by 1 Peter around 60 to 64 AD, so it's about 30 years after Christ's ascension. It was specifically at the time when persecution against the church was beginning to ramp up under Nero's reign. And if you know history, you know Nero was not a nice ruler. Uh, He persecuted Christians and did all kinds of evil torture to them. But Peter is trying to encourage believers to maintain their faithfulness to the Lord, their holiness in their lifestyle, and their faithfulness in trusting God to bring them through these trials and to continue to rejoice through that because knowing that God has a bigger plan. And so knowing what other scriptures teach us about Peter's life, I think what he's sharing is personal experience, things that he's learned. And we'll look a little bit at that this morning, but he knows what he's talking about. That's what it comes down to. This is not theory. This is practical advice for all of us. And so as we study together, I hope you find some encouragement, some lessons, some admonition that applies to your life. So we're going to take a few minutes this morning and just look at an introduction to the book and look at the the writer and the ones he wrote to as we begin. So starting at 1 Peter chapter 1, we're just going to read the first two verses. It says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through sanctification of the Spirit, unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace unto you, and peace be multiplied. Let's have a word of prayer, and then we'll take some a few minutes to look at this book in its uh, introduction. Father, again, we just come now before you, opening your word before us and letting you speak to us. And Lord, even as we read just a few verses out of this book, First Peter, we recognize some things in Peter and some things that you want to teach us through even his greeting and his introduction that apply to us today. And so Lord, just guide us by your spirit and open our hearts to receive these things. Lord, fill me with your spirit and give me strength of voice. 
give me wisdom and give me the words to speak so that your word might be uh, proclaimed and that we might receive the things we need to know from you. But Lord, I pray that through all you might receive the glory today and we'll give you praise and thanksgiving in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. I want to take a minute and just look at the author of the book. Peter, many of us are probably familiar with, but you may not realize he's called by several names in Scripture. Uh, Before Jesus changes his name, he's called Simon. And in fact, in the first part of the Gospels, you'll see Peter referred to as Simon Peter by Jesus many times. And as he's talked about in Scripture in the early parts of the Gospels, he's referred to by that as well. So Simon is his original Jewish name. That is what he went by until after he was called by Christ to be a disciple. The name that was given to him by Christ is Cephas or Kephas, depending on how you pronounce it. And this is an Aramaic name that was given to him by Christ. Now we go, well, Kephas or Cephas, isn't that Peter? And the answer is yes. Peter is the Greek version of Cephas. But many times in Scripture, you'll see Jesus referring to Peter, and he uses this name Cephas. But that was the Aramaic name. Now, Aramaic was the most common language among the Jews, and that's why we see this name Cephas in Scripture. Um, Aramaic was actually spoken by the merchants of the Babylonian Empire, you have to go way back 400 years before Christ, or almost 500 years before Christ. And the Babylonian Empire was the greatest empire on earth, and yet the merchants spoke the Aramaic language because Aramea was an, an, an area or a nation that Babylon had conquered. But because most of the merchants used it, it became kind of the lingua franca of the business world, and then eventually when Persia took over Babylon, Aramaic became the official language of Persia. And so Israel, the Jews, were in exile in Babylon and in Persia, and so they adopted Aramaic as kind of the common language, basically abandoning Hebrew for many hundreds of years. And so it wasn't until um, the Jews went back into Israel under the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, they started to rebuild Jerusalem and rebuild the temple, that Hebrew began to be used again. In fact, when they went back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple, um, Ezra and Nehemiah it records for us that the scriptures were read to the people, the law of God, so that they could be refamiliarized with it and what God's expectations were. But most of the people couldn't understand Hebrew because Aramaic was all they knew, and so the scripture, after it was read, had to be translated and then explain to them for them to understand God's law. Uh, Jesus, actually, and his disciples spoke Aramaic most of the time. I don't know if many of you have seen the, the movie that was made, The Passion of Christ, but that was recorded. Every All the dialogue was done in Aramaic because that was the common language of the day. And so Aramaic was continued even beyond Jesus' day until about 650 A.D., as the common language of this area, and then eventually it was replaced by Arabic. And so when you see this name Cephas, as far as uh, Jesus calling Peter Cephas, that's Aramaic for Peter. It's not a different name, it's just a different translation of the name Peter. So Cephas is the name that Jesus gave to uh, Peter. Now Peter is the common name or the Greek name. 
that we see most often in Scripture. And because the New Testament was written in Greek, then they translate his name Peter in the New Testament. And so we see this most frequently, and this is the name in Greek that Jesus gave to Peter. Remember that Jesus didn't just give him this name, but he said, I will call you Peter, and Peter mean, uh, in, in Greek is Petros, okay? It means a rock or a little rock, actually. But Jesus said, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, there's some controversy about Jesus' statement there that I want to touch on just for a minute, okay? Peter's name Petros, or Petros, is not the rock that Jesus was talking about here, okay? The rock that he will build his church upon is the Greek word Petra. Petros is little rock or stone. Petra is a boulder. That's what they use for a cornerstone in building. So Jesus was not telling Peter, you are the rock that I'm going to build my church upon. He was saying, your name is Petros, little rock. The rock of foundation, or the big boulder that he was talking about, was the claim that Jesus made just before this, when Jesus asked them, who do you say that I am? And Jesus said, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. It was the truth about Jesus Christ that the rock of foundation became uh, became Jesus Christ, or he became that rock of foundation for the church, that truth that he is both the Messiah, the Christ, and the Son of God, that's the rock Jesus was talking about. So as far as the Catholic Church saying, well, there's where Jesus installed Peter as the first pope, they misinterpret the the Greek version of this passage. So Peter means Petros, little rock, not the boulder or the foundation stone. Some interesting points about Peter's name. You see Peter's name mentioned in the Gospels more than anyone else except Jesus. So he's a prominent figure in the Gospels. And in fact, if you read the Gospels, no other disciple speaks in the Gospels as often as Peter did, and Jesus speaks to Peter more than to any other one individual. So we see just in the Gospels that Peter is a very prominent figure in the founding of the church, as even as Jesus is working in his ministry on earth. Okay? So I've told you about Peter's name, Petros, and the Catholic Church. Um, but I wanted you to understand Peter is an important figure. He's just not the foundation or the cornerstone of the church as the Catholics and other denominations sometimes like to claim. Jesus is that foundation. The Bible tells us there's no other foundation that, man, that anyone can lay except Jesus Christ. So Jesus named Peter a rock, a little rock. And unfortunately, because Jesus knew what Peter would become, that name became applicable to his life in his, in his future ministry as an apostle. But he didn't always fulfill that, especially before the crucifixion of Christ and even after his ascension for a little while. Peter kind of failed to live up to that character or that rock-like character that his name suggested. And if you remember, it was Peter who walked on water on the Sea of Galilee. Okay, there's our rock. But it was also Peter who looked at the waves and the storm and began to sink because of his lack of faith. So much for the rock. 
It was Peter who insisted that Jesus should not wash his feet at the Last Supper. Remember when Jesus was washing the feet of the disciples and Peter said, no, no, you shouldn't be washing my feet. And then Jesus told him, if I don't wash your feet, then you cannot be clean. He said, oh, well, then you need to wash all of me, not just my feet. So we have this impetuous kind of flip-flop guy that's named the rock. And yet he didn't always live up to that. Also at the Last Supper, remember Peter said to Jesus Christ, I will never deny you. And then just several hours later, he denied Christ three times vehemently in public. So much for the rock. Even after Jesus' ascension was during Peter's apostolic ministry, early in that ministry, Paul writes and rebukes Peter for relapsing back into Judaistic practices, specifically regarding dietary laws and then separating from Gentiles in fellowship. Now, at that point, the church had been established And God had saved both Jews and Gentiles and brought them into the church. And Peter kind of falls back into Judaism because he's being pressured by the Judaistic or the legalistic Jews. And so he loses kind of that rock-like stance and character that Christ defines him with in this name. So Peter wasn't always the steady, permanent, you know, standfast guy that his name implies. In fact, Theologian Kenneth West says this, he says, we recognize the English name Peter in the expression that we use when we say something just petered out. That phrase came from Peter's name, okay? And it means that something or someone just begins to diminish in strength or productivity until it fails completely and eventually ceases to exist. Now, it's interesting that Christ named him the rock, and then we use that phrase in our language, he petered out saying it just kind of failed and disappeared. Actually, both are correct. Okay, because when you look at Peter's life, we understand the process that Christ brought him through to break him first, before he could become the rock. And we studied a couple weeks ago about David, a man after God's own heart. And God had to break him and remove David from the picture before he could become a man after God's own heart. Moses, the same process. God put him in the wilderness to break him, to prepare him to become the man that, him, that God wanted him to be. And so we see the same with Peter. These instances that we see where Peter failed was God humbling him and breaking him so that he could be at the point in his life where he was at absolute bottom and then God from that point was able to build him up to become the prominent leader in the church that he was, as kind of the spokesman of the apostles, the first preacher of the early church. But God had to break him first. So he did become that rock, in a sense, that Jesus named him, but he had to go through petering out first to get rid of Peter before that rock could show in his life. So Peter ceased to exist the old man, and then the apostle Peter that Jesus Christ ordained emerged from that and became the prominent spokesman of the church that he became through the the power of Jesus Christ. And so that's how Peter chooses to introduce himself here in verse 1. He says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. There's no fanfare. 
In fact, there's no defense. There's no explanation. He just says, I'm Peter. I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ. He's not actually trying to focus on himself. He's just introducing himself in a way as, I'm the servant that Jesus ordained to bring this message. I just want you to know my name. And he uses the name that Jesus gave him. He's not trying to promote himself or lift himself up. He's just saying, this is what Jesus called me, and this is what Jesus called me to do. I am Peter. I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ. Unlike Paul, his authority as an apostle was never really challenged to any degree through history. Paul, remember, because he wasn't one of the original 12 and wasn't with Jesus personally during Jesus' ministry, he was challenged many times in his ministry about his apostleship. He, um, he, he begins the book of Galatians with this introduction. In verse 1, he says, Paul, an apostle, and then he explains, not of men, neither by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. So he's explaining right away, Paul is, that I'm an apostle, but it's not because someone chose me to be an apostle. It's not because I thought I was an apostle. Jesus actually ordained me as an apostle. God the Father put me in this position. The Holy Spirit empowers me in this position. So Paul, over and over, actually has to defend his apostleship. In 2 Corinthians 11, he spends the bulk of that chapter trying to explain to the Corinthians, who challenged his apostleship on many occasions, that he was in fact, called by Christ specifically to be an apostle to the Gentiles. Peter never had to do that, okay, because he was with Jesus Christ. And even though he wasn't the strongest of character while Christ was on earth, and even early in his ministry, people recognized his apostleship very quickly in the early church. And so he became, honestly, the authority. If you go back to Acts chapter 2, When the early church started at Pentecost, remember there were 120 in the upper room in Acts chapter 2, and the Holy Spirit came upon them, and there were tongues like a flame of fires on their head, and then they started to speak in tongues. And people around heard these people speaking in tongues, and they heard the gospel and and praised to God in their own language. And then immediately, Peter steps forward and gives the first sermon of the early church. And from that point in Acts chapter 2 all the way up through about Acts chapter 12, Peter is the prominent spokesman representing the church. And so people did not doubt his authority or his appointment as an apostle by Jesus Christ. They just accepted that. In fact, there are some instances when people were surprised at the boldness, if you just go two chapters forward from Acts 2 to Acts chapter 4, Peter is preaching again, and the Bible says in verse 13, and talking about the Jews in Jerusalem, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men, they marveled and took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. The power and presence of Jesus in the lives of Peter and John in this verse, specifically Peter, surprised people, because as we learn here, he was not officially trained in any religious training. He did not have a rabbi that taught him apart from Jesus Christ. The religious establishment didn't recognize Jesus necessarily as an official rabbi, because he didn't teach the same way the other rabbis did. 
Peter and John, the other disciples, didn't go through a formal training by the sanctioned rabbis of the Jewish religion. And so they were considered as unlearned and ignorant. And yet Peter here, after being filled with the Holy Spirit, proclaims the gospel boldly in a way that these men who were learned marveled at the power and authority with which he spoke. So, even with this kind of marveling expressed, Peter's authority is never challenged. And that's why, for the most part, the authority of First and Second Peter as part of Scripture has never been challenged, except on a few occasions by uh, extreme liberals or unbelievers trying to denigrate the Word of God and, and challenge the, the, the authority of the inspiration of, of these books or other books in Scripture Okay, but we know these books are from God through the Apostle Peter. And so that's how Peter introduces himself. I am Peter, called by God, commissioned by Christ to be an apostle to bring the good news of the gospel. Right? And we see all that just in his introduction, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now I want to talk about this word apostle that he uses. Because we throw that word around and we talk about the apostles and the disciples and we're the same thing. Well, the disciples became the apostles, okay, in the early church. The apostle was a position that Jesus appointed these people to, or these men, in the early church to get it going, to to build kind of a foundation off of the foundation stone that Jesus Christ laid. In fact, in Scripture, a couple of times, it talks about Christ being the cornerstone and then the church being built on the foundation of the apostles. So if you picture a building being built, Christ is that boulder that is that first cornerstone. Everything rests on him. And then the teachings of the apostles would be those little stones that make up the rest of the foundation. And that's what it's talking about. Peter is one of those little stones. But that's what the apostles were, and the word apostle actually just means one who is sent out. I mean, if we were to take that in its broadest sense, we would call people that were apostles in that day missionaries because they're sent out to bring a message. And that's what Peter's commission was by Christ. Remember Christ, before he went to heaven, sat on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, and he asked Peter three times, do you love me? And Peter said, yes, I love you, Lord, you know that. And after the third time, or all three times, he said, all right, if you love me, feed my sheep. And he was saying, take this message to the people who need to hear it. Encourage people, build them up, give them the news of salvation so that they can be established in the kingdom of God. So the word apostle, as Peter uses it here, just means one who is sent. But he's specifically sent by Jesus Christ. And that's why he says, not just an apostle. He says, I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ. Jesus specifically sent me. Now, we have to look at um, this word apostle a little bit, because even though all believers are, in a sense, sent by Christ. And the Great Commission was not just for the apostles. The Great Commission to take the good news of salvation was given to all believers. We are all ambassadors, and that's another word we could put here in this place. We're ambassadors of Christ to the world. We are to bring the good news to those who don't know it. That's what Peter was. That's what the apostles were. And yet they were the foundation stones of the church in doing that. But not all believers 
are given the authority of the original apostles in the early church. The apostles with this title, as commissioned by Jesus, included the original 12, minus Judas Iscariot, of course, because he was, as Christ called him, the son of perdition. He betrayed Christ, and then he ended up killing himself. Okay, so now we're down to 11. But after Christ went to heaven, Peter and the other apostles replaced him with a man named Matthias. That's 12 now. Now, Matthias was qualified as an apostle or as a disciple because he was with Jesus, even though he wasn't the original 12, but he followed Jesus most of his ministry. And they recognized in him that his faith in Christ his commitment to Christ, and so God showed them that this man was the one that should replace Judas Iscariot. So that made 12, but then we have the Apostle Paul, and he comes after the fact, and Jesus Christ appears to him as he's on the road to Damascus, and he basically knocks him off his horse and blinds him and said, okay, Paul, are you ready to start following me instead of fighting me? And Paul submits at that point, and becomes the prominent apostle appointed directly by the person of Jesus Christ. And so he's number 13. Okay? So those were the 13 original apostles that were given special authority and special power by Jesus Christ as they went out bringing this message to people. So Peter is saying he's one of those original apostles that's sent directly by Jesus Christ with the divine message of Jesus Christ. And so his purpose is to proclaim the message that life and everything that we want is only to be found in Jesus Christ. And that becomes abundantly clear very quickly if you continue reading, because he says, I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ. Here's who I'm sent to in verse 1 and verse 2. But in verse 2, he says, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace unto you and peace be multiplied. So he addresses his recipients here as those who are saved, those who have received the good news, and have been changed because of it. And then in verse 3, and I'm I'm not going to preach on this, we'll get to this next week possibly, but in verse 3, he breaks out in this praise for God, focusing on salvation, which is the core of his message. And he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, didn't we just hear that recently? Remember the praise that's given to God? We talked about blessing God or blessed be God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the one who is the God of all comfort. We saw that in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, and that's how Paul addresses him. He says, blessed be God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Peter says the same thing here in praise. Blessed be God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again into a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. So in his introduction, he says, here's who I am, here's who I'm writing to, and then he breaks out and prays to God, and in his praise to God, he thanks God that he's given these people he's writing to this security in their salvation because they've accepted the good news, 
And then he says, at verse 5, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Now, remember, I told you at the beginning, his purpose in writing this book is to encourage believers who either are going through or are going to go through extreme trials in their life. And so he starts and he says, blessed be God, because he's given us this salvation and he's not going to let go of us through these trials. And these are the people I'm writing to. I want you to understand that God has given us salvation. And so he's giving the message of salvation right here in the introduction, specifically to people who already have it, saying you're not going to lose it. God's not going to lose track of you. You're not going to fail even though you go through these trials. Salvation is the way to life, and it's in Jesus Christ. And so there's his message right there in the first five verses. And so that's what he's committed to. Bible teacher David Pratt says this about Peter. Interestingly, Peter describes himself simply as an apostle. He makes no effort to exalt himself above any of the other apostles, as would be expected if Catholicism is correct in claiming that he was the first pope. Certainly, he was an important man who accomplished many great things for the Lord, but there's no passage here or elsewhere that would prove him to be in any way superior in position or power above the other apostles or in any sense head or foundation of the church universal. So as we read First Peter, and even as he introduces himself, we see this book is not about Peter at all. And he wants to make that very clear. This book is about Jesus Christ. It is the message that Jesus has commissioned Peter to take. And he brings that message even just in his introduction. And so that's the letter that Peter writes, the letter about Jesus Christ, to find hope in Jesus Christ, to find security in Jesus Christ, because he's not going to let go of you even in the worst times. Now, he's writing to these recipients, and that starts right in verse 1. He says, I'm writing to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus. Now, it's interesting that he uses these word, this word strangers, and the word strangers in Greek is parabdidamos, okay? I'm not going to quiz you on that, so you don't have to memorize that. But that word refers to those who are foreigners or refugees in a foreign land. That word was previously applied to Israel when they went into exile in Babylon and in Assyria and eventually into Persia. That's what they were called, strangers in a foreign land. Now, Peter's not writing to Israel in exile in Babylon and Assyria. Peter is writing, and he says right after this, to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. All of those are provinces in what we call now modern-day Turkey. What they called it back then was Asia or Asia Minor. Okay, Many of those areas were areas that Paul visited on his missionary journeys. Some of them not, but many of them were. So Peter is writing to strangers in these areas. The word also could be translated aliens. In fact, some of your Bibles may have that word there, aliens which means, as we take it to mean, someone who does not belong to this world. Okay, That would be a a literal interpretation of that. Aliens, someone who does not belong to this world. 
And I think that might be the best way to look at as we study this passage to understand who Peter is writing to and what his message is all about. Uh, Peripetimos means literally a stranger alongside. It's not just a person who's simply passing through a foreign land, but it's a foreigner who has taken up residence temporarily. You could call him a refugee, if you will. Um, but he living with and next to the native people of the land. In fact, in Vincent's word studies, Vincent writes that paradidimos refers to persons sojourning for a brief season in a foreign country. Though applied primarily to Hebrews scattered throughout the world, as I mentioned in the Old Testament, here it has a wider, more spiritual sense looking at Christians as having their citizenship in heaven. And so Peter, I believe, is writing not to Jews or Jewish Christians or just Christians in general that are scattered throughout Asia Minor, although that is the literal situation that he's approaching. But he's writing to believers through all time in all churches that don't have our citizenship on earth, but we belong to heaven. And so we are scattered throughout the earth as aliens, literally, not belonging to this earth, but belonging to heaven, living here temporarily, waiting to get there. And that's the core of his message. That's the, the, the real substance behind everything he promotes and gives us in this book. We have to realize that we are aliens, strangers in a foreign land. And he addresses these people. Now, real quickly, I'm just going to list these these areas. He lists Pontus, and this was in the far northern part of the Roman Empire, and Acts 2 tells us that there were people from Pontus at the uh, Pentecost, at the event of Pentecost, who heard the gospel in their own message from the people who received the Holy Spirit there, okay? Galatia is a province in Central Asia Minor. It contained the towns of Derby, Lystra, and Iconium, and if you know Paul's ministry, Paul visited all of those cities many times on his missionary journeys. In fact, the book of Galatia, Galatians is addressed to the churches in that area. Uh, Cappadocia was the third one. It's located in the eastern portion of Asia Minor, north of Cilicia, and it's a place also represented by people who were in Jerusalem at Pentecost. So we see areas that Peter's writing to, representatives who were at the event of Pentecost, not originally in part of that 120 who received the Spirit, but remember there were 3,000 converted right after that event, and many of them went back to their home countries and started churches in their own land. And so Peter's writing to these places that probably originated, many of them, with Pentecost. Asia is the fourth one. This includes most of Western Asia and also where Paul spent much of his time during his third missionary journey. And then Bithynia is the last one he lists here. And this is an area uh, in Asia, Northwest Asia Minor, right next to a strait of water that separates the European and Asian sections of what we call modern-day Turkey. And Paul specifically was prohibited by the Spirit of God from going to this area. So this is not churches that Paul has established, in Bithynia specifically. This is churches that started some other way. Peter may have actually been there at some time in his ministry and started these churches. But it gives us kind of a broad range of churches in a large area that Peter's writing to. And uh, contrary to how Paul writes, Peter's not writing to a specific church like Galatia or Colossae or Ephesus, 
Peter's writing to all Christians in a wide area that's represented by probably hundreds of churches at this point. So these aren't names of churches. These are names of provinces that span a wide part of the Roman Empire. Now, according to some historians from AD 54 to AD 60, Peter may have made an extensive missionary journey or journeys throughout the Roman Empire with his wife, actually, visiting these provinces. And Paul references this idea of him taking his wife in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 5, when he's talking to the Corinthians, saying, Am I not an apostle? Do I not have the same rights to bring my wife along if I would? And he's saying, but I've given up those rights for the promotion of the gospel. His reference to bringing along a wife may have been referring to Peter bringing his wife on his journeys through this area. But David Guzik says this, these specific areas were places Christianity had extended in the first several decades after the beginning of the church. And it may probably have been the route that the original courier of Peter's letter followed in distributing these letters. That's the order that these places appear. And especially that this was not written to any one congregation, but intentionally written to all Christians in all of these places mentioned, but generally to all Christians. And so we can't, as some people do, say, well, this was written to the book of Corinth, so it doesn't apply to us, or this was written to the the, the church at uh, Ephesus, so it doesn't apply to us. Peter's very general. There's no specific church, and so very clearly this applies to all of us. And that's why it's important to understand what Peter's giving us here. He also says that these people are scattered throughout. The word scattered throughout actually is from the Greek word diaspora. It's the word we get our English word diaspora or diaspora from. And it's what we call the dispersion. Remember when Israel was exiled into Babylon, into Assyria, there was no people left in Jerusalem and in Israel. The land was destroyed by Babylon and by Assyria, and that time period after they were exiled is called the dispersion or the diaspora okay that's this word peter uses you're scattered around or scattered throughout so with that reference then some people believe that peter is writing to jews specifically to jewish christians because his message is is addressed to christians and in fact in galatians chapter 2 verse 8 paul states this For he who worked effectively in Peter for the apostleship to the circumcised also worked effectively in me toward the Gentiles. So it's very widely recognized that Peter was kind of the apostle to the Jews. Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles. For that reason, people think, well, Peter's writing to Jewish believers here. Uh, In verse 18 of 1 Peter 1, Peter states, that his recipients have been redeemed from the vain conversation received by tradition from their fathers. Now, what's that vain tradition he's talking about? Works according to the law. We studied that this morning in Sunday school, that the law does not save. We've been redeemed in Christ to live in faith. And so he's telling these people here, you can't live by the tradition of your fathers. That would be very Jewish. And so, you know, they think, well, maybe he's writing to Jews. And in chapter 2, verse 9, He refers to his readers as a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, all of which were terms that God used to refer to Israel in the Old Testament. So it's very possible Peter is dressing believing Jews in the churches, but we have to go farther. 
in chapter 1, verse 14, and in chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, Peter indicates and references that his listeners or readers had previously lived a life in a Gentile manner before their conversion. Now, that wouldn't be true of Jews, especially legalistic, Judaistic Jews. They tried to stay as far away from that as possible. So we have a mix. Peter's addressing Jews, and he's addressing Gentiles. So there's no one specific focus either side. Peter is addressing all believers in this regard. So there's a broader uh, audience than just Jewish Christians or both Gentile Christians. And so this confirms the fact, um, by the way, that if you look at these areas on the map, all of these churches or all of these areas that, that Peter wrote to are in Gentile territory. And yet he has very Jewish sentiment in many of his references. So it's a broad category that he's writing to. People, Christians, scattered throughout the region. And so because of that, this idea of Peter writing to strangers in a, scattered in a foreign land, it's not Jews that are in exile. It's not Jewish Christians that have been driven out of Rome. It's not Gentile Christians who just aren't in their home country. He's talking about Christians who don't belong to this earth. And he has to make that, uh, that stress right here at the beginning for us to understand the rest of the book. Because we don't belong to this earth, Peter says, the rest of this can be true in our lives. We can find comfort. We can find security in Jesus Christ. We can find security in our future, not in our present, because we don't belong here. And so regardless of age, heritage, background, Peter's addressing this letter to all believers. We're aliens and strangers in this earth, scattered all over the world, but we're waiting to be called to our final home where we belong with Jesus Christ. And so that's how he introduces the book. I'm Peter bringing this message of hope to people who don't belong in this earth because we belong to heaven. And so as such, this letter is applicable and important for us because that's the situation we're in if we're believers. We get caught up in all the problems that we go through in this life, we get caught up in all of the, the issues and the problems in the government and in the society and in the culture. And I'm not saying we shouldn't stand up for right and for truth. But we get so stressed out by what's going on around us, we forget the fact that we don't belong here. Our home is in heaven. We are strangers and aliens for a little while. The best part is yet to come. In, pa- in chapter 2, Peter uses this same word, wording of being aliens and strangers, and he says this in verse 11, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to continually abstain from fleshly lust, which weighs war against the soul. This body that we live in right now was made for this world. If we live to fulfill the desires of this body, to make this body the most important thing in our lives, we miss our whole purpose as believers. Because we're focused on a world in which we do not belong. 
The body we live in is just a shell. It's going to go away. When you die, if you're a believer, your soul will go to heaven. This body will turn to dirt. That's where we came from. That's where we're going to end up. And so Peter is trying to stress right here, even in his introduction, I'm writing to strangers who don't belong to this earth and therefore don't live like you belong to this earth. Because you don't. And if you continue to live with your eyes focused on just this earth, you'll never find comfort in God. You'll never find your purpose for being here in the first place. You'll never be uh, secure in the salvation that God has given you because you can't see beyond what you're experiencing right now. And so Peter's point in using these specific words is that God's saints are just passing through. Our future and our hope is in a city not made with hands, but eternal in the heavens, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5. I'm going to share with you as we finish up, Spurgeon gives an interesting picture of how aliens, if we truly consider ourselves aliens, this is how we should live. He says this, imagine you are in a round tower. Think of an old renaissance castle and you're in the tower remember in the tower there were just slits in the walls where they could shoot arrows out at the enemies you couldn't see much but you see just enough that you could aim your arrow and shoot at the enemies so he says imagine you're in a tower with slits in the walls like that now imagine that you're being whirled around inside this tower all right would you be able to see through those tiny slits to appreciate the beauty that's outside And the answer, obviously, is no. Even though there's openings in the walls, our eyes are more focused on what's inside the tower because that's what's happening to us right now. And he says, you don't have time to adjust to the distant things outside the walls through those slits. He says, the near... This is how it is with earthly living. The near and earthly wall of this life obstructs our view of eternity. An occasional slit is left open, perhaps in a Sunday sermon or a personal Bible reading, which through which heaven might be seen. But if your eyes are only set to see earthly things, you cannot adjust to see higher things during those momentary glimpses. So long has your soul looked upon the world that when it is turned for a moment heavenward, it feels only a quiver of inarticulate light. Unless you pause and look steadfastly, you will not see or retain any distinct impression of the things which are eternal. And that's our problem. Even though we might recognize we're strangers and aliens in this world, we're running around with our eyes focused just on the immediate inside the tower, and we can't see beyond that. And that's our problem. And so Peter's going to take that approach in the rest of his book to try to encourage and uplift believers who have lost that sight. We can't see beyond this world, but we have to look farther. We have to pause to look through those little windows in the tower to see what's beyond what we're going to eventually, because that's where real life is. So why is it so important for us to be able to focus on the heavenly home and the heavenly blessings that we are to come? Because that's the only way that we'll remain faithful on this earth. In 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul talks about Jesus coming back to rapture his believers, but at the end of that he says, 
Therefore, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. You know, I shared with you that verse out of Psalm 84 this morning. The eyes of the blessed man are in the highway to heaven, the highway to Zion. We can't take our eyes off the eventual goal or we will lose our motivation for why we're here in the first place. And that's exactly the situation that Peter's writing to these believers in. Nero's in full power. He's begun to escalate persecution of Christians in the empire. People are experiencing imprisonment, torture to a degree that you couldn't even imagine, death, execution. And Peter's saying, don't lose your faith because you don't belong here. So his primary message is this, rejoice even through your trials and remember that because your salvation is secure in Jesus Christ, this life will pass and eventually all the blessings are going to come. But you can't focus just here. You've got to put your focus on what Christ is going to do in the future. And the same message is applicable to us. Don't lose hope. Even though it may get really bad in this world, God's not going to lose you or let go of you. If you are truly a saved believer, trusting in Christ through faith, you can't be lost. And even if you have to go through trials and persecutions, God's going to get you through it. Maybe not physically, but he will bring you to that final home where you truly belong. And that's the point. And so Peter says, don't lose hope. And in verse 2, he says, elect according to the foreknowledge of God through sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Find grace and peace in your life because of this. There's our security. And that's where we're going to pick up in in verse 2 next time as Peter reminds them of their election in God and the security they have in his people. Now, all of that was just an introduction, and all of that came out of verse 1, okay? We'll go a little faster once we get into the passage, but I want you to understand who's writing, who he's writing to, and why he's writing this book. And that will make all the rest of it make a whole lot more sense in being applicable to us. All right, we're going to stop there this morning. Let's have a word of prayer together. Father, thank you again for your love. Thank you for your word in which you've taught us that our hope, our security, our salvation is in you that our eyes shouldn't be fixed on this world, that we need to look beyond to see a glimpse of the heaven that we are destined for. And so, Lord, encourage us today. I pray that you would just uh, go with us now as you promised. You've told us you will never leave us or forsake us, so help us to know that you're with us even as we go from this place, as we go through the trials, the turmoil, the, the stress of life. Lord, we can trust in you because you have us in your hand and you will not let us go. We praise you and thank you for this lesson. Continue to guide us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.